This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. All right, Kev, new show, and we've got a recurring Your Valuable Home character on. Yeah, John and uh, we're going to be doing Morgan next week. Uh, that's his daughter who had a really bad horror story that led into, well, it, was really, it was a disaster how you look at but it. But the horror story is turning into a happy story now, right? I, I, I okay. believe it is. I Good. believe it is. Okay. John's going to come on and talk about some of the things that he had to do because he had stepped in to be more of a GC mm-hmm. to try to... Pull it all together. Yeah. Yeah, it was a mess. So, John, hey, thanks for coming back. I want to talk about this. So, how let's chat. You? I think the last time I was on, we were just still waiting on some rough permits to come in for plumbing and HVAC and electrical. That's all been done. The insulation was installed. The drywall's done. It's been painted. The stairs are in. The railings are on. The floor is currently going down and all the windows, exterior windows and doors have been installed. And now we're waiting on interior doors coming in this weekend. And then there's just some molding and then kitchen cabinets. That's it. That's it. That's it. We're definitely over the hard stuff. And then I heard you're going to be empty nesters again. That's exactly right. And I was <laughs> my, my goal was the end of March. So we're going to be pretty close. Good. So I know it's been difficult over the past probably month and a half that uh, you and I had spoke to try to get the puzzle together to get everybody lined up to fix the issues from the other contractor. What was it like? It was good for the most part, I would say. I mean, especially, you know, everyone that you kind of turned me on to, whether it was the drywall guys or the railing guys or even yourself and Dave, that was good experience. I've had some issues with some of the guys that I get weekends and nights saying they can do something when they really can't. So there's been a couple of hiccups here or there, but for the most part, it's been really good, especially having Dave and yourself out to install the windows and doors. That was the biggest thing that had to be done, specifically given the size of some of the windows. One of the windows was 112 inches wide. So, you know, they were not only were they big, but they were very heavy. And from my perspective, having been in IT for three decades, it was kind of cool to watch guys that really knew what they were doing and at the top of their game. So I kind of had a first row seat to that. And you know, I think I was pretty good at just carrying things around for everybody. And I understand you got Provia windows for that house too, right? And doors. And doors. Yeah. You can't go yeah. wrong. You can't go wrong with their products. I mean, those products are going to be looking good and it's a lasting a long, long time. It is kind of interesting. Even Connor said it to me because he worked with Dave and Kevin one day. It's kind of cool to watch a window or a door going in the way it's supposed to. I even said to my wife, I wish we would have put those windows and doors in here in my current home. And the way that they installed them, it was you know layer after layer of tightening products. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was pretty amazing to watch. Now I would know how to do a window correctly. Well, having watched these guys. You're not going to be opening a contracting company, are you? No, not no, but that's, that. that's but an I, interesting point. But at least point. I'll be able to tell somebody if it's done right or wrong. That's an interesting Good. point. I, I think that most homeowners would not watch what's happening. Leap yeah. of faith. It's just a leap of faith. They're going to do it right. They're going to do it right. But to know how it goes in or how it should go in and then watch the process, I think is a good thing to do. Well, the, the windows home. and doors prior that he did put, the other contractor put new windows and doors in already. And I believe you had massive leaks coming in every time it rained. Yeah, we had massive leaks. There was air infiltration everywhere. I mean, you know, just putting the foam around it like you did, Kevin. I mean, that's something I would have never thought to do. And I've never seen done before. I think even in my, my windows at my home, sometimes I can feel drafts around the molding. And now I know why. Improper right. it, insulation. It was, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I think you go, if you go into eight out of ten houses, you're probably going to feel a drift, right? Correct. Yeah, because yeah. people don't do it that way. There's so many levels and steps that we do to make sure. It's it's not just the foam. There's so many more levels on top right. of that, all the right. rubbers. Mm-hmm. This was the best segment that we did. So the windows upstairs were done. So they were the second day, and, and Connor was there. So I said, Connor, here's, I just want you to do me a favor. Walk upstairs and stand in between the framing of the where the bathroom is and the bedroom. And their house is very close to what's in, in this area. It's called the Schuylkill Expressway. It's a mess. It's traffic 24 hours a day. So the traffic's going by. So as he heads upstairs and he's standing there and I'm at the bottom of the steps and I'm like, you up there? He said, yeah. I said, what do you hear? And he got quiet for a second. He goes, it's really quiet here. So when I said, well, this, when you have a window that's done correctly, it's, it has a great design pressure load, but again, in, installation of uh, the proper products also, mm-hmm. it's so well insulated. You don't hear anything. Cuts down on the sound, too. Correct. Keeps the water out, cuts down on the sound. Well, I always tell people when you have air coming in, you have water coming in, mm-hmm. that's a correlation of sound also. Sound Absolutely. can easily get in. Yeah. Now that everything's watertight, it's airtight, it's also soundproof. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you can't hear anything, but it had cut down dramatically on the sound. Now, John, did you notice that also? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're great windows. And as I said, it was really great the way they were installed. The other thing that was, I thought was pretty interesting to watch is, you know, what I found with contractors too, is that a lot of them don't think about the next guy, the guy that did the HVAC, when he put the thermostat on the wall, he cut a big hole in the drywall. Well, the actual plate for the thermostat didn't fit over the drywall opening, so we had to patch it, right? It's just simple things like that where you're like, why wouldn't they think ahead to what's next? And even when Kevin and Dave were putting in the the windows, they made sure that the nailers were all ready and that the openings were wide enough for the Aztec to go in the exterior molding, Mm -hmm. which is another great thing because they were thinking already about the next move. When the guy has to come and put the trim up is it ready for him you know or does he have additional work or are there no nailers for him? yeah well it's it's simple when you have a good contractor you don't have to worry about these things and it's a lot of people that that's that leap of faith they might be a roofer and they decide to get in the home improvements but they don't understand the whole aspect because they haven't been in business long enough or like you said probably they just don't care they they're in they want their money they want to get out and who cares about the homeowner Mm -hmm. and i found it i find out a lot honestly I found that a lot with a lot of the contractors. They don't think about the next guy yet. Right. Well, that, and again, that's a difference when you're dealing Which with Which means just, that you have to, may have to rip something out, alter something if you don't think about the next guy yet, right? Right. And once yeah. you start covering things up and it's not done right, it, it's going to be more difficult because yeah. you have to rip it all out again. Yep. So when people talk about a GC, yet somebody just sitting back and just running a job, there's a lot more than that. Dave and I are such a great partnership with it because after Dave's still working and you see me kind of pull off to the side, that's what I'm doing in my mind, making sure all these steps are in place for the future. I mean, John, you saw when we were putting the window in, the window's ready to go in. It's all ripped out. But we had to reframe that opening for those steps that John was talking about. And it was Dave and I talking about how are we doing this? Well, what if this works? What if this? Well, how's this going to work out? Because there was it's not a standard application window. You had cedar under there. You had stucco under there. It was a heavy window. Yeah. So we had to make sure we were in place with everything we were doing and to make sure that those steps that we were talking about are done and done correctly. So anything can be done, but if it's not done correctly, there's going to be problems down the line. And we're just trying to minimize because John, as you've seen, look how long it took us to put in a window. Now normally you see on a a show, it takes you a minute or two. It took us what, about an hour to two per window. Oh yeah. I mean, even the, the, the amount of time that you guys took leveling the window, it was like every 18 inch increments, they were leveling again. And I would never even have thought to do that, right? I would just think once you just put a level on it, it's level, but they measured it all, all the way across the window and up and down the window to make it correct. I know that, but you're lifting this too. It's had to be a heavy window, right? They are Profi makes a heavy, yeah. heavy duty window. Yeah. I'll tell you, it's awesome because, and again, that heaviness of the window shows when the product's finished and done when you feel the window. Oh yeah, so, I mean, question. The window that he put in the other contractor prior to what you're getting with the Profi Endor, big difference oh yeah i mean there there were just it's just it's completely opposite ends of the spectrum i mean these windows and doors the way that they they the action of the door the way that it rolls i mean everything about it was great the other doors were hinge bound they were they they weren't quality doors to begin with but even the installation was all wrong now, what happened with that? All that product was bought. Did he buy all the windows and the doors and everything, the other mm-hmm. contractor? So what? how did that work itself out? 
Um, well, we, we haven't, we haven't litigated yet okay. and, and that's, that's, you know, that's future. Um, we're still trying to get, get that moved back in. Um, but we ended up, um, basically pulling those all out and I, and I, I'm pretty sure Morgan's just going to donate them to Habitat if they'll take them. Yeah. Habitat will take them. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're newer. Some of the newer products, what, what people think is with Habitat, people think they can put trash out. What somebody's no, they trash don't take, trash, they don't right? Take tra- yeah. They they're very yeah. strict about it. But I always tell people, listen. At this point, uh, the hardest thing is that yet sometimes you just have to throw certain products away because mm-hmm. yeah. the installation was so destroyed and destruction of the product Not itself. Worth you can't yeah. save it. Yeah. And Habitat knows that. But yeah, if you have anything new or something, that'd be great for Habitat. It's a great organization yeah. to do with. But uh, I'm glad that everything's working out. I know it's been stressful for you and your entire family, but now that we are in place, I believe uh, it's time to party. I really appreciate everything you've done for us. I mean, it, 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 honestly, I don't know how I would have done it, whether it was the drywall contractors who were, who were outstanding and did some amazing work on, you know, existing plaster walls to the windows, getting you ordering the window, help me order the windows and getting those brought in. And, you know, just the whole pe- everything that you helped me do got me over the hard stuff. Well, thank right? you. I think from, from here on in, I think we're, you know, I'm sure I'm going to have a million questions from here on in because there's always been a million decisions going into everything. But I think for the most part, we're in, we're in a really good spot. Yeah, yeah I believe you are because uh, we're going to have Morgan coming on next week. And what I always tell people, and I would talk to her prior to a couple conversations we had in the past couple of weeks, is that uh, some people don't have direct access to me to get where you're at. So depending yeah. on what part of the country is, we can help out as best as possible. But again, still trying to find the right contractor. Well, you can still identify what the problem is, you know. Right. Over but the phone. Whatever. I'd rather have this not have it happen to them. They don't have this problem that they went through because it's it's stressful. So if you ask the right questions and understand what that contract's about in the beginning before you sign it, we're just trying to make it a little bit easier for Selecting all of our listeners. Selecting the right person and trusting that person to do the right job. Thank you, guys. Okay, Kev, you've been digging up horror stories again, right? It, not too hard when you're ripping out a basement that was uh, done prior, and people never got a permit. So remember we talked about how important they it never is. got a permit. To no, why would you want to get a permit? We can do it cheaper, faster, and look at the problems we're going to have. And <laughs> oh boy, this was the job that I was doing, and we we did so many shows on this one. Why get a permit? Why do you need a permit? Because if a permit was done, the inspections would have been done, and the electric the way it was done would have never passed. Now, permits permit you to do things right, right? Do them correctly because somebody's <laughs> going to be checking it. Mm-hmm. Again, for any electricians that are going to be listening on this one, you're going to love it. Are you supposed to use duct tape for electrical tape? I would think not. Sure. Okay. I'm just asking because I've seen it probably about 30 times in the past two years where they have handyman and a few other guys come in and they put two wires together, probably don't have any tape, so they use duct tape to wrap it together. No, not even a wire so. nut. I don't think so. So then it's probably not true then. When you get a permit, you're going to get an electrical permit. Electrical permit is going to see that the job that you performed is up to code and it's done and done correctly. That's why we talk about getting permits. So the basement we're on, I'm ripping the basement out, getting to a few things, which is the drywall, rip the drywall down. Behind the drywall is wiring that was done previously. Again, the homeowner, they said they were young at the time when they had the basement done. It was about eight years prior to us getting there because that's motor damage. They said they hired another contractor to do the work. Splice boxes. Now I tell people, well, listen, behind a wall where there's no access, you cannot put splices in. You just can't just throw a wires together with some wire nuts because the wire is not long enough so they just tied a few wire nuts together a couple of them had duct tape around it to get to the next outlet probably not a good idea i'm just throwing <laughs> it out there so well duct tape will burn won't it? yeah if it's loose and those wires start arcing what's going to happen is it does catch on fire but it's still if it's not even in a box let alone anything else you can put a splice in just bring that box out and put a blank cover over it you need to have access to that you just can't put it behind a wall and not do anything with it and then they were asking me we got we had some problems because we had uh, jobs that they put some appliances and they had a kitchen and they said they knew they ran what's called a home run it's a direct circuit going from that appliance right to the breaker box and they said yeah after the basement some we were having problems like some of the things were shorting out and the other thing i'm thinking in my mind is what they'll probably had done is tapped into that. So what they do is they found that circuit. Instead of running a wire, which is probably only about 20 feet, fishing a new wire in, they decided to cut into that box to tap into power certain other work they needed for the basement that we were working on. So they were stealing electrics, what you're doing. So that permit that was applied for when they did the kitchen, which was just recently, to get some rework done because they had to get it fixed because they said, we knew we got the kitchen done prior to this. We'd never had problems, but then the basement was done because we didn't get the permit for that. So what they did is they were stealing the electric from that dedicated circuit. We talk about, you know, getting the information for the show. The hardest thing for me is not figuring out, like, I'll tell anybody what you need to do for window application, siding. I can figure anything out. The hardest part for me is 
to see how these bad guys are doing these jobs so we can educate the listeners how to not have it happen to them. I've never seen some of this stuff before over the past couple of years. Just even recently, a couple of the jobs that we were on, I think it's handyman that are just coming in that really are out of work because they said they call a somewhat contractor to come and do any type of work. But you look at it and go, well, they did what? And then they send pictures over. And even some that I've seen on jobs going, oh, this is not good. You can't spackle over a live outlet. You can't just spackle over it. You just don't, you don't do stuff like this. And I know I had in one of the videos I put on my uh, Instagram and, and Facebook, the social media for your valuable home. But these are things you cannot do. And basically what it, it all comes down to for any horror story is that why do you need a permit? Do people do this because they just don't care or do they do it because they don't know? Two reasons. Number one, I think they don't know because they've worked as a handyman. Number two, there's codes that have been upgrading throughout the years. They haven't kept up with the codes. Right. And if you're running a new bathroom, you got to run a new circuit for that new bathroom, whether you're going to be just doing a little bit of fixing or a lot of fixing. Like there's a township upper Dublin where I was getting a permit and I said, yeah, we're just going to leave a lot of the stuff. Yep. Great. I'll tell you, they've, they've got their act together on how to get a permit. So that's why I always say, yeah, it's no problem. The reason I'm getting a permit, I know it's such a small job, but I know I need to run a new home run. I just got my underwriter, which is United, who I use them to certify and stamp that I'm going to be doing this. So that's what they're going to look at to make sure that what I'm doing, the plans that I'm going to be doing and set in place are going to be up to code. And then the township is also going to verify that we've did that up to coast because they're going to be looking for a sticker that says approved from United. But mm-hmm. since I'm doing a bathroom and even though I'm leaving the drywall up because everything's in perfect shape, I'm upgrading it. So when I upgrade it, I need to do this additional work. The additional work costs more money. So number one, the permit's going to cost more money. The, the wiring that I'm going to do is going to cost more money. So how's a new contractor just starting business going to be able to go head to head with me in work knowledge, doing the job right? They're going to have to lower the price. And to lower the price, they got to make shortcuts. Well, if they get a permit, you cannot make these shortcuts. So my price includes everything to be done. Somebody you're, else, do, you're doing it according to Hoyle. Right. And I, I have no choice over this. I have to do it because it's code. I have to get it done that way. So it's going to cost me more time. Number two, I've got to get inspected. And inspected doesn't really take more time. All it is is... For you, what you're talking about, how much does the permit cost? In this part of Pennsylvania, in the southeastern part, I've seen permits anywhere from 500 to $1,200 for a kitchen, bathroom. I mean, sometimes they are a little expensive, but there is a lot that goes into it. Do sometimes do the contractors not get it because the homeowner instructs them not to because of the cost? I've been asked that a couple of times and just recently. You, I turned the, the jobs job down. Okay. I turned I would, it down. I would too, yeah. What if yeah. I get caught? What if yeah. the township inspector's driving by and he looks at a, a kitchen that I'm doing, ripping all these walls out and electric? I get blacklisted. If you get blacklisted in that township? Oh, yeah. They're going to be really upset about it. And they're going to be keeping an eye on you so a lot not, differently. It's not worth it for the homeowner or a contractor to bypass this step. There are many, many contractors because, again, they don't know. They're going to be doing jobs without permits, but it costs more money. But if they can lower the price, if you get 10 prices that are $10,000 for a bathroom and somebody's coming in at $7,000, there's got to be a reason why. And that's what I can do on the show here. Send me the contract. Cross out the price. Cross out the name of the company. I don't want to know that. I just want to see the meat of what they're going to be doing. Kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And I can break it down for you so you have no problems. And I can tell you right off the top if they're getting a permit just by looking at that contract. So send them over and we'll make your life a lot easier. Absolutely. And safer. All right. We'll be back after we take a quick break. Hey, Kev, we've talked many times about the importance of curb appeal and the value quality products added to exterior home improvements. Provia fiberglass entry doors and vinyl replacement windows add that value. And for huge impact, curb appeal and value, there's Provia vinyl siding and manufactured stone, right? Yep. The super polymer formulation of Provia siding reflects heat and protects against UV rays and solar heat buildup for lasting color and value. Provia siding comes in traditional, insulated, and decorative profiles, all with the look and texture of wood. People often stop me and ask about my Provia Cedar Max siding. I've actually gotten siding jobs that way. Really? Absolutely. Okay. Well, how about colors and styles? My customers love the palette of popular colors, including dark and bold hues, and a variety of styles from clapboard to Dutch lap, board and batten, and shake like mine. And you can see it all and how the colors and styles work with Provia entry doors and vinyl replacement windows at Provia's fabulous website, provia.com backslash YVH. Also, check out Provia's Manufactured Stone, another wow product for the eye-popping exterior and interior accents. I just used it on my fireplace. Amazing how real Provia Manufactured Stone looks. That's because individual stones in Provia Stone Veneer are made in molds created by professional stonemasons. They use actual stones to form the molds. That's how Provia gets its rugged texture, shadow lines, and coloring of real quarried stone. The assortment of shapes and sizes and 10 stone color palettes even take geographic variations into account. Once again, 
Provia delivers on its mission, which is to serve by caring for details in ways that others won't. Visualize the possibilities at Provia.com backslash YVH. Okay, Ryan, as we continue into the college segment, we got another great one, don't we? Oh, yeah. This is back-to-back with Ilya. We spoke with Ilya last week. Yep. He's a great friend of Your Valuable Home, and he's loaded with great information, and he's working on some really great projects. Now we're going to talk about his involvement in the residential building design competition held by the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA, N-Y-S-E-R-D-A, if you want to, anybody wants to Google that. The purpose of the competition is to recognize and reward the design, construction, and operation of clean, resilient, and carbon-neutral-ready multifamily buildings. There's a real need for that in this country today. And last week, we identified the NYSERDA competition as being part of a much larger whole, decarbonization of America, the effects of which are already beginning to take hold in the areas of the U.S. where we have listeners. And that would be California, New York, Maryland, North Carolina, Florida, and probably some that I just didn't mention. So, Ilya, I suppose some might be resistant to moving away from fossil fuel-powered cars, homes, towns, and cities to clean energy power sources. But you know what? When you stop and think this through, isn't the U.S. and most of the free world all about adapting and progressing? We went from fireplaces to furnaces. We went from land transportation to air travel. We went from horses to cars. Aren't you lucky you don't have to load up your tools on your (laughs) horse and go to work? What's the difference in going from fossil fuels to clean energy sources? Or, or, Ilya, is there a difference? Yeah. Well, hey, guys, it's it's great to be back again. I thought you guys would be getting tired of me by this point, but uh, never it's great to be back no, no, on. Never, never. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, what you just described, every one of those transitions had its difficulties at the time, right? And we're going through that same pain point that a lot of people are, are wondering, well, fossil fuels or not. It's just like when you're saying, you know, should I go to a hybrid car? Should I go to an all-electric car? I've got a fossil, you know, and now you're thinking about it for your home. Your largest investment that you probably have as an individual, right? Mm-hmm. So it's essential to recognize that that you're right on. The world is going this way because we have to. You know, we have to make sure that we reduce our GHG emissions, but this also plays into equity. And equity, that's the extraordinary piece of this, is when you start to think about transitions, what's going to be better for you in the long run? And so the difficult hurdles that we have to overcome in this process uh, are, are many. I'm sure we're going to talk about a few of them. Yet the benefits and the opportunity is enormous. Our current infrastructure investment in fossil fuels is kind of holding back the rapid transformation because we built so many gas stations and pumps and holding and refineries. And that's a major investment that the public has put into and the government has put into. But when you think about it, we have made commitments to hold the temperatures of the earth, you know, the GHG emissions and everything down. So clean renewable energy is the new economic driver that's a big part of meeting our goals to to hold under those GHG emissions. Mm -hmm. And the other side of this is the inefficiencies of our current system are readily not discussed with the general public. A good, good example is energy transmission from power plants loses around 70% of the energy before it reaches the end user. I mean, that is, it, it, could you imagine, so you're telling me I'm investing in something. Give me a dollar, I'll give you 30%, 30 cents back. And that's generally the what we're, we're thinking about in the U.S. when we look at, at the way that generation is done in the U.S. today. So renewable energy near the source or near the end user, reliable and resilient, is, is our key. So I, I love that question and happy to talk more about it. A term very much linked to decarbonization is performance-based regulation or PBR. What exactly is PBR? Yeah, this is this is coming to a theater near you if it's not already there. This is a transformation how government looks at building codes. Performance-based regulations, or we, we call them performance-based codes, um, is really, it sets the standards for buildings based on its on a building's actual energy use rather than on compliance with say a stipulated technology or design feature and and let me talk a little bit about that for a second it states really how a building must perform to its intended use rather than describes how a building must be designed or constructed and the advantage to that is a performance based building code is really flexible it allows for development and innovation in the building design and technology systems mm-hmm. from the architect to the engineer to the builder mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a prescriptive code might say, hey, you need to build to a certain standard example, make an R20 wall. So we have to put that much insulation in. Whereas a performance building code says the whole building must perform to this standard. How you get there is kind of up to you. So it really is about the performance of the building rather than saying, hey, I've got one good wall over there, but a bad wall over there. So it's it's a holistic approach. 
So is this for new buildings if, for the future, for if, like a builder is going to be building a new house? For performance-based codes in the state of New York, they're for both. So if you do a renovation of a building that's worth 51% of the value of the building, so a major renovation, they're going to require you or triggers new code. And that's nothing new. Performance-based codes as going forward, all new buildings have to comply to this. And as a stopgap measure, if your building is over 5,000 square feet, I think that's the, the trigger in New York State, they will begin to require you to do energy audits. So eventually, you're going to have to retrofit to meet these codes anyway for performance-based. So it depends on where you're at, but it's for existing buildings, proving it out in your operations uh, over time, and then new buildings as well. Yeah, I think it would be a lot easier with the newer buildings because newer they can building, adopt yeah. as your, your building. Yeah. But a lot of the older buildings, if they're doing certain square footage renovation to redo that, what would that cost be to retrofit an older building to comply with the new codes? Yeah, it depends on where the building stands now and what your goals and targets are set for that building type and, and energy use. We've been looking at some retrofits for uh, schools, for example, and uh, we're working with a faith-based organization, and we're looking at what the energy code might require there, and it's a lot of extra insulation. So as far as that building goes, it does add cost, but then we look at the, and you guys know this really well, you're not looking at the initial cost only, you have to look at the life cycle cost. Sure. The energy savings, because you know that the, the price for gas and everything has gone through the roof. The energy savings just calculated on what the simple mean is over the past five years is an extraordinary savings over time. These retrofits can and should pay for themselves if your building's in decent condition. Now, we can't, you know, obviously that's a blanket statement. If you have a building that's already falling apart, well, your deferred maintenance plus the retrofit might put you in a position where, yeah, it's going to cost some money. So, but always look at that life cycle cost. Yeah, That's get a, the return on investment. You're going to exactly. get payout on it. You're going to, and you're going to yeah, have a better yeah. building. You're going to have a better building. So, you know. Absolutely. Well, they pushing that in the more of the residential with the existing homes. If you're getting some work done to your house, is that something they're going to really push? Because that's where there's more homes than there are buildings in the state of New York or any state. Yeah. So the whole building has to comply to the energy performance. Mm-hmm. The term's been used, you know, they're flying a plane and, and building it at the same time. So a performance-based code is, it, that's one of the great questions, is you're going to look at the building holistically for its end performance. So if I do an addition to a building, I have to bring the rest of it up to a performance value. Yes, you do. And now how do I get there? And is that going to be cost prohibitive is sort of the lingering questions that are out there currently. So, you know, we're all on this learning curve, uh, whether it's the builders and architects or the code officials and, and improvement process. But um, that's a great question. And, and I don't have an answer for it, but it's definitely a case by case. In our case, we're, we're going to be moving the building and the owners to try to get to that high performance value because it makes a lot of sense. Where are we with PBR at this point in time? It's the way I would describe it, it's like a wave that is rolling across the country. And which states are implementing? And I believe there are about 17 of them right now, right? They're in ver- various stages of implementation or, or investigation. Yeah, no, you're right on. I think right now you're right. It's somewhere 17, 18 states that have adopted throughout the United States. And where I'm at in New York State, we're in full swing. So each of these states is in a varying degree of implementation. And when I say we're in full swing, you know, with that, we're flying a plane and building it at the same time. In the city of New York, they're moving towards local law 97, which is even a hyper local uh, way of interpreting that performance based code. Uh, So if anybody out there that's listening and it's not in your state yet, it's going to be coming to you soon. Every city and state government have recognized the value of performance based codes and the building industry recognizes it as well. And there's some caveats with that. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about those. But it's uh, coming forward very rapidly. We're moving towards an all-electric kind of building too, aren't we? Yeah, it seems so. It it does allow for innovation. So, and electricity in all of its forms of renewable energy, right? So, we're going all-electric is our trajectory where we're heading. And of course, performance-based codes are the ones that are moving us that direction. Now, translating that into reality um, means a couple of things for people listening in. One, that means really good heavy insulation uh, for your building. You know, mm-hmm. guarding against heating and cooling, really mm-hmm. top-notch doors and windows that are properly installed. The proper installation is the key. Super efficient equipment that meets your needs. And, you know, many of the listeners out there, you might have heard this term kind of passive house. So as we're moving towards electrification, what you want to make sure you're doing is reducing your load on the electricity. And the passive house is that super insulated building that minimizes air infiltration. It usually is tied with super efficient equipment. 
It also leverages things like natural daylight, and it keeps your electricity bills extraordinarily low, depending, and it doesn't matter where your electricity is coming from, it keeps them very low. So that's kind of where this is heading. It's not just about electrification, it's about the efficiency and how the building operates in all of its components. Um, envelope being being one of the major ones and equipment being the other major one. So going electric has a lot of moving parts, but isn't one of the big ones, the heat pump, the reinvented 21st century efficient heat pump? Yeah, and it's been surprising. We, we discussed it briefly on our last call. And, you know, I've been looking even more into this. We're specifying them in a lot of projects. You know, you can have a lot of moving parts in a current building, but as I mentioned, like Passive House starts to remove those, move, moving, those, those moving parts down to fewer and fewer. And a heat pump that is extraordinarily efficient has been named in, in a lot of uh, the states, including my state, as one of the ways forward for homeowners. And there's a lot of support for that. And heat comes with that. Heat pumps, as you mentioned, this this increase in the technology and efficiency over the past decade has been really incredible. I think that this, that technology for the retrofits of buildings as we move towards all electric buildings all across the state and all across the country is uh, one of the ways forward. Um, there, there are others, but that's one of the main ones. Even the governor put that in her um, recent address in New York State for 2022, and she just she's called out heat pumps as one of the things that they'll be supporting. You're talking about New York there, but New York, I, I understand it, New York, California, Massachusetts, and Maine are way out in front on this. They've, they've, uh, they're going out and promoting heat pumps for new, constru- new construction and for retro- retrofitting existing homes. Am I right about that? Absolutely. And I think there's even more states jumping onto that. In, in New York State, we have a program called Clean Heat. And um, that's a program that really takes the governor's words. And in most of these states, they have goals for in the near term. By 2030, for example, 2 million climate-friendly homes is the goal for New York State, including an additional 1 million homes that will be electrified. Of all of those homes, 800,000 are geared towards low to moderate income folks. And to get there, They've created programs like the Clean Heat Program that if you're an existing homeowner, you can go through a rebate process or your contractor can go through one for heat pump purchase. And so that's one of the main things. And the same kinds of programs are rolling forward in these other states, Maine, Massachusetts, California, that the governor's office and funding is available for those retrofits and specific equipment that supports this transformation to electrification. There's a project in Newtown, a town in Bucks County, and I saw a couple of those houses, not all of them, but a couple of those houses have heat pumps. It's a very distinctive looking piece of equipment. I see so much equipment outside of buildings and on top of buildings that, yeah, it is a very distinctive piece. But I don't think it's so different from some of the things that you're already saying um, with your heating and cooling systems that are out there today. But it definitely seems to be with the new technology paying some serious dividends to folks. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people, I'm presuming what they're thinking right now is for retrofitting. I always call it the layman's terms. You know, when we're talking about, say, for homeowners getting windows, your house isn't going to be warmer with a new window in the center of the house. New windows are just going to be able to, to slow the cold air, the air infiltration like you talked about inside the house. So all it's doing is lowering your heating and cooling bills. That's the main component is, is doing all this. It's not that you're you know, spending the money outright, but you're, spe- you're getting the money in the long run is what Correct. people need right. to think about at that long run. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And in addition to that, if you're in a hurricane zone or a high wind zone, if your windows are rated, I would add to that that you can lower insurance costs. If you have uh, impact rated windows that window by window, you can insure you can lower insurance costs through through various programs. So in addition to that return on investment that you you illuminated, there's there's other ones out there that people may not be thinking about. Here's a question that kept popping back into my mind. The heat pump is one device versus Everybody, well, I've got two. Kevin, you've got two. You got an air conditioner, a compressor outside. You got your furnace. Yeah, we got conditioning everywhere out there. So, multiple devices for different seasons, okay? Won't the life of that one piece of equipment be shorter because it's working around the clock all year year long? Or is is it advanced that far that 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 won't be an impact? Well, you know, it's that's a great question. And this is, it's highly dependent on the building. One, I'm not an expert in heat pumps, but seeing this technology, knowing the life cycle of equipment, any any piece of equipment, you're between 10 to 20 years, depending on the equipment for any piece. Mm-hmm. But for a heat pump, we're also tying this to more efficient buildings. So a more efficient building will elongate the lifespan of any system that's 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 there. 
the heat pump tied to a, a building with uh, better insulation, less swings in heating and cooling because of outside temperatures really play into the longevity of any piece of equipment, right? But but think of it this way. If you have, like you said, two or three pieces of equipment, I've got maintenance on two to three pieces of equipment. And let's counterbalance that to your question, because I would rather have maintenance on a single item with perhaps a backup system for resilience, like a like having a generator, right? Mm-hmm. I'd rather have that set up than three pieces of equipment plus a generator. I, I'm trying to suss out what's happened and what's gone wrong and pay all the maintenance for those various pieces of equipment. So I think having less is almost having more, in yeah, my okay, opinion. Okay, good point. Good point. Will the transition to a heat pump be costly for homeowner like me who heats and cools their home and powers a generator? Can I do the generator with the heat pump too? For, from the resilience side, I'm going to talk about from the resilience side. You should have a separate input for your generator. And that, that being that if you have failure across systems, you need to have a backup system. And so this is largely on the resilience side. So one, you have passive survivability. If you have a better home that's better insulated, that if you do lose power, you're more comfortable in the house for longer without the advent of electricity or heating and cooling. So that's one piece. But with a generator, um, we always advocate for having a second way of powering that generator and for a steady state amount of time. So that could take different ways of doing that in different markets. In a lot of, like for hospitals, you have to have a a gas-fired generator as your backup system. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is what mine is right now. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you know the the one thing about all electrification, you have to answer still there on the books for uh, critical facilities and critical operations. You can still get an application to have a backup generator that still could be on natural gas or have a, a tank tied to it or whatever it may be. So that's the sticky part that's out there. We've got all electrification yet if electricity fails. We have to have life safety protected. So, what is that backup system? And can it be? Can it be a series of backup batteries that will last for X number of days? Mm-hmm. Then I'm okay. I'm okay with that, right? And can oh, a yeah, heat sure. pump be tied to that? Then I'm okay with that as well. Yeah. But we do have to have that innovation on the table and the options on the table for life safety. And and so we we got to make sure that if we go to all electric, what is the backup system and how is that put together? Broad adoption of electricity-driven equipment for heating and cooling demand the generation of clean electricity? Because right now, it's 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 really not that clean, isn't it? A lot of coal-fired plants are still powering the, powering. the source to get us yeah. the electric. Yeah. So it's like you know, yeah, it's flying a plane while you're building it. Mm-hmm. So we're still – I get where you're, you're doing one part, but we're still on the back end. Uh, what people don't understand is is where that power is coming from, how that power is generated to get the electric for us to generate the heat pump. But is, is, that, is that where we're going? Yeah, I, at least uh, the states that I'm working in, yes. Mm-hmm. And and this is the, the kind of funny thing is that we hear about financing for heat pumps. We also hear about performance-based codes, all of those things. But there's a third piece to this, and you're hitting it right on the head. That transition, at least in New York and some of the other states that you mentioned, is all those transitions on a rolling clock. So the rolling clock of when the full performance-based codes take take into account. Targets for 2030 and 2040 with with targets and and transition for the building stock and building performance is all laid out. And there's a couple pieces to that, including the industry now needs to know how do we build that, of course. The other piece of this is the transition and transformation of energy generation throughout the United States. In the state of New York, you can see in those bills and adopted acts by the governor's office that the energy transformation of how we produce energy is also underway for those 2030 and 2040 clocks. We're rapidly moving towards renewable energy locally. So they're supporting generating energy at your building or the surrounding site using microgrid, microgrids, energy storage capabilities, and then how we create energy throughout the state. It's being supported by funding from the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, as well as other federal dollars of how we go to this energy transformation. So you're, you're right, right on it. We are still in a place where most of our energy is, or a, major, or a good chunk of it is produced by fossil fuels. It could be electricity, but what is that plant? Is it a coal-burning plant? And that's part of the transition that's happening. We did a piece on the hydrogen-powered house, and oh, yeah. the woman who owned it, I, I mean, she was really high on it, and the guy who built it was really high on it, too. Is clean hydrogen part of the non-fossil fuel equation? 
Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah, I think it, I think it's gaining a lot of popularity in uh, Sweden, Norway. The, the Scandinavian countries are very forward thinking in this regard, aren't they? They are, and and you know, you, we we talked briefly last time. You know, I went to COP twenty seven, which is that conference of parties. Yep. And one of the things that struck me there that this is an area of major transformation around the world. Major market forces, companies, and investment are really moving towards hydrogen technologies as part of the energy profile transformation, including, you know, solar wave energy and all of the things that we've seen out there in the marketplace. But this one is going to play a key role in the future. But currently, we really got to say that that's one of the things in development. Most hydrogen currently is produced by coal or natural gas as feedstock. And both of those are very harmful to the environment, producing carbon dioxide, GHG, while hydrogen itself is really uh, an eco-friendly piece in the processes that, that, you know, when you get to it. But the hydrogen is not widely used yet as a fuel. It's definitely going to be part of our future. So I'm, I'm really watching this um, technology. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, we're working on a project in Hawaii, and we received a Department of Energy grant called an ETIP grant that is studying all the different energy profiles for the project we're using. It's a community resilience hub. One of the uh, things that Hawaii is looking into is putting together hydrogen as one of the major pieces of their energy future. And they're, they may want to pilot it on this project or in the community I'm working at on. So I'm, I'm really very interested in where this might take us to add to our energy profile. Yeah, people might say, you know, a lot of people who don't know about hydrogen might say, wow, that's a pretty scary concept because it can explode. Yeah, military has been doing bomb? it since the 60s. Basically, it's making energy from water, isn't it? Yeah, and it's been around for a while, and that's the interesting thing. It seems like we've had a love affair with it for the past 70, 80 years. It keeps coming up and back and, and whatnot, and now it's in a place where major companies and major governments around the world are in really investing in it uh, to see where we can take it. But you're right. There is a, uh, an unknown, but it is, it is. It's really taking water and turning it into energy through a, through a process. We've been talking about how you power the buildings, but we got into a little bit about how the buildings are put together, too. Uh, that's another big part of this for residential and commercial. It is. Uh, and and how we build and where we build is a big piece of this. You know, I think the first time I was on, we, t- we talked about where and how we build a little bit. Mm-hmm. But with regards to energy, it's about reducing your load. So we have to really think about making more efficient buildings through that building methodology to use less energy from the get-go. Um, I already mentioned strategies for a passive house. That doesn't mean that it's only applied to residential construction, for example. Passive house is done for commercial buildings and uh, high-rises. So it's really a technique and an ethos of how you take a look at environmental elements, um, high insulation value, lowering your energy sort of load or needs through all aspects of building and use. So your building methodology is really important. So a good contractor or a good builder and working with them side by side, hand in hand is the best way to go here. And the other piece is where you get your materials from. If we really think about the ecological problems that we have today, and we mentioned the, you know, kind of holding our GHG emissions down, if you have locally produced materials and they're done in a really good ethical way, that's another piece of the puzzle of how we get there. So better buildings, but if we're getting materials from really far away, that contributes to the negative aspects of, of the building overall, the carbon that it produces into the atmosphere just to produce that material. But then how do you get it to the site? You got to ship it from point A to point B. Yeah, it's from, if it's really from far, I mean, you guys know this, I mean, it's, and especially we saw that during COVID, that material stress and resources and people would say, like here, they say, oh, we used to produce that up the Hudson Valley, just two towns away. Now we stopped producing it because the global marketplace put people out of business. Now people are really rethinking, well, maybe we should start these hyper-local supply chains. Uh, and I think that's taken hold a little bit. It makes a lot of sense. Resilience is the operative word here, isn't it? Can you define it? Resilience for us, does it translate to energy efficiency, to livability, to the strength that withstand extreme weather, to affordability? Does it translate to all those things? It does. And, you know, gosh, resilience is definitely part of this discussion. You know, it's one of my favorite words. That's I live and breathe resilience. We already talked about the term passive house. So let's talk about this in terms of passive survivability and then bring in this sort of idea about livability and affordability. So if you're hit by a natural disaster, a really good building will allow you to operate before, during and after the disaster. 
So resilience is life safety, but we're tying this to the building right now for this, for just this conversation. So first and foremost, that building, it needs to be built to stand up to any of those shocks and stresses that are going to hit you, extreme weather events. And once you survive that event, whether it's been a storm or extreme heat, you still need to operate to achieve what we like to call your mission critical functions. And for a homeowner out there, your mission critical function may be provide breakfast to my family and get the kids to school on time. That's fine maybe all kinds of family-centric things, but that building has to be able to provide that level of security to you. So the term passive survivability, it means that if all the supporting systems in the community fail, like electric grid fails, maybe pump for fresh and clean water, that fails, and all those things fail, that your building itself can still operate to a certain degree and you can thrive through um, that period of time until things are restored. That is resilience. So you ask what that is. So that's resilience in terms of you, the family, and the building. And we strive for this passive survivability in all the work that we do to give homeowners a sense of security. It's also a great sense of kind of autonomy. You know, if something happens, you have a backup system of your own. We mentioned a backup generator. And uh, you can continue to operate. But with the equity piece, that's a really big thing. So does this mean livability and equity? Absolutely. So if we think about further into this, this idea of how we've described performance-based codes mean that you're going to have a better building that uses less energy. That higher initial investment over time, you begin to keep more money in your pocket. That's equity. And that, we, we talked briefly about a building that I did um, here in New York City after Sandy that had an operations cost just for energy, uh, $245 a month for the house pre-Sandy. We rebuilt the house that was 200 square feet larger, and it turned out it's about $61 a month to operate because it's a passive house. Wow. Huge and difference. That's, that's a single retired person who lives in that house, my client. Mm-hmm. And she has that extra money every month for the rest of her life, in addition to the insurance reduction for building a better home. Now, that's equity. That's to me. That's a lot of equity, and she also has control when you know when things have happened. She, there was one power outage, and hers was the only house that continued to operate, even though all the other ones were supposedly built with backup generation. She had her neighbors come over, and she had a party. So, I mean, that that's equity. <laughs> that's, that, that's that is equity. Yeah, that story got me then, and it, it still gets me today. That's a wonderful story. A really, really a wonderful story. The New York example, Buildings of Excellence, is proof positive that resilience is catching on, taking hold. But what about America's big home builders, who account probably for most of the home construction in the U.S.? Are they marching to the same drummer? I'd like to think so. I mean, my fingers are crossed that I hope so. But I really think that um, we're going to have some of those that see profit in this and have been early adopters for these better buildings and others that are, are waiting for the transition to happen. And conducting business as usual. And and the performance-based codes will bring them to, now we must do this. I think it's all over the place, just like the adoption of these codes are all over the place in the United States. But, you know, the good news is I just worked with this this national group um, for HUD, um, Housing and Urban Development, on the federal level over the past three years. And there was a group that convened this called Home Innovations. And we just completed a five-book guide that's geared towards home builders and developers on how to build resilient buildings across the United States. Now, HUD's going to release this in about two months. And this really does put people on the footing of, wow, here's how we can do these things. And it's really geared towards the industry, home builders and developers alike, because everyone's going to be asking the same questions. How do we do this? And so, we, so at least there was a, a good thought to get this stuff out there. But we're, I think we're far away from it collectively, but at least people recognize what we need to do to get everyone on the same page. The title of the act has been criticized with the naysayers contending it has little to do with reducing inflation. Is that really true? The act really has a lot to do with inflation by enabling a lot of what we're talking about here today. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Okay. You know, I think, it, I think it really does, because if you take a look at what the act is geared towards paying out, those housing units that we just talked about for New York State, 2 million housing units and 1 million electrified units or 800,000 electri- electrified units, uh, these really come out of that inflation reduction act it's it is a reinvestment infrastructure and that's buildings as well as larger pieces of infrastructure that really put us in a place where our maintenance goes way down the return on investment is there and to bridge the gap 
of people who need to afford these things, the money is there to give you the financial break and incentive to do the work. You know, there's another piece of it called the Justice 40 initiatives. You really dive into the Justice 40 pieces. Those are all about equity and justice that really tie to your retrofit of buildings and, and energy efficiencies and all of those things. So I really think that it, it's not appropriately named. I agree about that piece. It of it, could have been, I, yeah, it could have been better. Absolutely, it could have it could have been a lot better. But mm-hmm. boy, does it! If you delve into it, there is. And if you're a builder out there or an architect or engineer, you should really be looking at these things because the funding is available that your federal government, your tax dollars, are putting back into work into your communities to have better uh, buildings. That's in your. That includes your building. So take advantage of it. it. There is funding there for these retrofits, especially energy. Is there a market for Kevin to do this kind of thing? For residential. For residential. And that's probably your biggest thing, because that's where there's more residential homes than our, like I say, commercial building. Yeah, I mean, it, just even the climate the climate act in New York State is geared towards it clearly is about housing. Uh, single family homes to multifamily, but the single family homes is exactly what the governor and we recognize. It, quite frankly, is the most unregulated of the built environment across the United States is single family homes. You know, if you have under a certain size, you don't need to meet certain qualifications or regulations. So not only is this funding out there to recognize that, hey, we need to really retrofit and do work on one of the most unregulated parts of the industry, but also to make sure people can afford it. So I think there's there's a lot of money to do that. Okay. Well, we got to leave it there today, but as always, uh, <laughs> this awesome. has been fen- absolutely phenomenal. And uh, I think it's important for our listeners to understand these subjects and to embrace them. I'll keep coming back to the reinvented heat pump. I had one in 74, but the, apparently today there are light years ahead of where I was in 74 when I had one. Yeah, well, it's just not with the heat pump. There's everything else that you can put into uh, the house to make your absolutely. house a lot better. Absolutely. But there's, I mean, even with Steve, Ilya, what I always think about during this interview real quick was the making a house so tight, how much more will have to go into the mechanical system to bring in fresh air. So that's yeah. another component. These are all the things that were going to my mind when we're talking about building an envelope that's going to be so well insulated and airtight. How much more do we need to go in a residential aspect to get to that air quality? No, I, I would love to talk more about that. Blower door tests to you name it. <laughs> you'll, be back, you'll be back on again. You'll be back on again. Yeah, this again. gets me we'll excited to residential. To yeah. All right, we got to leave it there today. But Ilya, as always, magnificent. Perfect. Thank you very, very much. This will foster a better understanding of everything that's going on today and moving forward. And more important, if you need help in Hawaii, just let me know when you're going. I'll be on the same flight with you. <laughs> hey, you got it. Thanks, guys. Hey, Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. Zero monthly payments? How do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufacturing, stone and metal roofing products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship the provia way that's this week's podcast your valuable home comes to you every week on the new pod city podcast network apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories if you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story email me at kevin at your that's kevin at your and don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 